Section 25 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. The Perfect World by Ellis Grimsour. Section 25. Hatred on Kimar. Marlinock, the Jacques Majordomo, called on Sir John and Alan a few days after they had witnessed the sacrament of Schlerik Atada. Will you be ready, he asked them, when the Kaimo is at the full, to start your journey to Humori to render homage to the Rorka? Are we all to go? asked Alan. But one of you need go, he answered. The Rorka will visit Miniviar later, and then the other strangers may make their bows. I am glad of that, said Sir John, for I should like to stay here in quietness and retirement for a little while. I am beginning to feel the burden of my age, and am worn out with the strain of the last few years. "'I will go to Hermori,' announced Alan. "'I can start at whatever time the Jaycock thinks best. "'He has prepared incense and jewels for you to take as gifts from the absent ones,' said Marlinock. "'If you will now see Wazikeshta, all your arrangements can be made.' "'I'll go now,' said Alan.' Alan was going down a pretty lane toward where the airbirds were housed when he suddenly became aware of footsteps behind him. He turned. Immediately the footsteps ceased, and he could see no one. Thinking he must be mistaken, and fearing nothing from the Kimarnians, he went on his way blithely. The air was deliciously warm, and the fresh breeze, balmy with the scent of flowers, tempered it. Still the footsteps followed with monotonous regularity. As he hastened, so they became quicker. As his died down, so they ceased altogether. Yet he had no sense of fear, no feeling of impending evil. The thought of peril on Kimar was impossible to imagine. The Kimarnians were of a breed as different from the earth to which he belonged as he was from heaven. He passed delightful homely fields, gleaming with buttercups and daisies. Friendly cows chewed the cud in sleepy enjoyment. They did not rise as he drew near, but only raised their sleepy heads and looked at him out of their liquid eyes with interest and friendliness. A pig grunted in a corner as she suckled her squealing young, a donkey brayed, a couple of goats were nibbling the grass while their kids frolicked near them. He saw strange animals, too. There was the gorwa of the deer family, a beautiful creature, the color of a Scottish stag, and its counterpart in miniature, but with none of its brother's timidity. All the animals on Kimar were of a smaller build than those he had been accustomed to. The cows were even smaller than the little fawn jerseys so valued in England. He had seen terriers and bulldogs, Dalmatians and spaniels in this strange world, and the bigger breeds were all represented on a smaller scale. The Jacak had a dog, a Borzy, Alan would have called it, yet perhaps it was no bigger than a small Irish terrier. But strangely enough, its beauty was not diminished by its minuteness. So Alan went on. The way was strange to him, but he was enjoying the calmness of the scene, and he knew his excellent bump of locality would sooner or later lead him to Waikeshka. Again the footsteps beat time with his own, and anxious for companionship, he stepped into the shadow of a tree, and hoped to waylay a shy but friendly stranger. A second passed. The footsteps had ceased, then came a rustling, and the head of Colmervan the student appeared over a honeysuckle bush. Silently he came forward, alert and watchful until he was on a level with Alan. "'Hello,' said Alan amiably. "'Where are you going, Colmervan?' The effect was magical. 
Comervan jumped as though he had been struck, and his face whitened. He remained silent. I'm going to see Wajikesta, I went on Alan. Are you coming my way? Comervan did not reply, but a baleful light gleamed in his eyes, and his mouth twitched. What's the matter? asked Alan curiously. Suddenly Comervan spoke, and there was a wealth of passion in his tones. Why did you come here, you strangers? I was happy until you came. I was contented. You have made me want, want the unknown. You have stirred my heart and filled it with longings that I cannot yet fathom. Why have you come to stir up misery among a happy and contented race? I don't know what you mean, said Alan. I have done nothing. You've done everything. You dared to raise your eyes to the level of Clory, our Ipso Rorca. You put thoughts about her into my head. Oh, as Alan would have broken in. I read your thoughts. It was easy, my friend. You dared to think of her as a woman, even your woman. It was an impertinence, I tell you. I love Clory with my whole soul, and before Mitzer the Mighty, I'll carry her away into some far-off land before she can look with a favorable eye on a man, not only of another world, but a man of coarser nature than our own. Comervan was breathless when he finished, for his words had come up thick and fast, tumbling over themselves in his great excitement. Alan was speechless and looked as he felt, absolutely uncomfortable and ill at ease. Why, your very pose proves guilt, continued Comervan. Why should I not love Clory? demanded Alan. Why should my love for her cause strife between us? Because, my stranger, I am a prince of the Rorka's house. I am not only Comervan the student, but Tazak of the house of Pluthos. Why else would Clory have honored my party? Why else come to the dance of a student? There are but four Kimarnians that Clory can marry, and I rank second. Alan wondered at the time why the princess should come in so natural a manner to the student's reception. He wondered at the time at her familiarity with Comervan. She had patted his hand, smiled into his eyes, and had honored him more than once with a dance. But Alan, too, was in love, idiotically, insanely in love with a woman who had not even troubled to raise her eyes to his at his presentation. His pulses throbbed at the remembrance of the touch of her fingertips as he raised them to his lips. He loved her, and in that moment was born a desire to overcome all obstacles, and princess or no princess, to win her. But he knew, too, that in this pleasant land of Kimar, an enmity had come upon him, and wondered whether the curse of death had brought it. He wondered whether the dead and decomposed body of their faithful Murdoch had indeed brought sorrow to this fair land. "'I've spoken to your Ipsa Rorka only once,' said he, "'the night of your party. She has called on my uncle and Mavis. Mavis has been out driving with her several times. But I, unfortunately, have missed her each time. Surely you are not jealous because I—' "'Because you love her?' "'I am!' said Colmervan thickly, and I say this, if you so much as dare to raise your eyes to her, if you dare to address her, I'll make you suffer for it. I, even though I also suffer eternally for it. And with that, he turned on his heel and walked quickly away. Alan was very perturbed about this meeting and felt inclined to tell the story of it to Wazi Keshta, yet the sacred feeling he had for Clory was not to be spoken of or bandied about from man to man. No, he would keep it to himself, and trust to time and common sense to cure Comervan of his strange hatred. 
He walked quickly on, and already could see the airbirds in the distance circling above their houses. The little lane turned quickly at right angles. There was a steep descent, and hedges rose at either side to a height of six or seven feet, while the overhanging branches of the trees met in the middle and formed a leafy arch. The grassy banks were carpeted with flowers, and the scent hung sweet on the air. Again the narrow path turned sharply to the right, and before Alan realized it, there almost at his feet, stretched across almost the full width of the path, lay a lion, full-grown, with his shaggy mane stirring in the breeze. Alan stopped suddenly, and his heart beat quickly. The lion's eyes were closed. He was sleeping. The Englishman was almost afraid to move, lest the savage beast should spring upon him and devour him. He looked round to the right. The bough of a tree hung low over the path. He leapt up the bank, and with one mighty spring caught hold of it, and swarmed up to a topmost branch. He was safe, but the sudden sound had startled the lion, who rose up and with a low growl prowled backward and forward beneath the tree. It was an uncomfortable position to be in. The tree bough was very thin, and bent and twisted and crackled ominously. Still the king of beasts remained sentinel underneath. Alan felt the perspiration on his face as the limb shivered and bent, yet there was no other to which he could move. Still the animal remained near, his quickened senses no doubt wondering at the noise he heard and waiting to see what had caused it. The minutes dragged by. The branch was weakening perceptibly. He could already see the white of the inside where the branch was gradually tearing away from the parent trunk. There was no one in sight, and still the lion walked restlessly to and fro. The chimo was sinking rapidly. It was already low down on the horizon, and Alan knew he had been about two English hours in his perilous position. He saw a branch above his head, and he wormed his way along to see if he could in any way reach it. Carefully he went, slowly. Suddenly, with a scream and a crash, the branch gave way, and Alan felt himself being hurled to the ground. The distance was not great, and he landed in the center of some sweet-smelling soft bushes. He was dazed, and wondered when the lion would pounce. He knew he was powerless to help himself. He heard the pad-pad of its feet. He could hear the sharp intake of its breath. Then the thing was upon him. He shut his eyes and waited. Nothing happened but the snuffling of the wild beast and a gentle nosing as it examined the stranger. Alan opened his eyes. The animal was sitting on its haunches surveying him, and he felt there was amusement in the beast's eyes as it watched him. He moved slightly. Still the beast watched motionless. He raised himself up from the encircling bushes and clambered down. He knew he would have to face the inevitable. Suddenly a voice hailed him, and he saw Wazikeshta coming round the bend in the lane. Stand back, he cried. There's a lion here. He may spring. But the Waz came on fearlessly. Alan was petrified. His tongue was parched. No sound came from his lips. He watched the Waz in frozen horror. The Kimarnian was smiling. Where have you been, my friend? You were late, very late. I thought you had missed your way, so I came to seek you. He was now within three feet of the lion. What is the matter? Why are you so grave? Has aught affrighted you? Alan pointed to the tawny beast. His hand was shaking. Surely the farce must end soon. The lion spring and tragedy culminate the play. Why mock were, said the Waz affectionately. What are you doing here? You seldom visit us, you know. The lion moved toward him and rubbed his great head against the Kimarnian's leg, 
while Waikeshta talked to him and petted him. He's tamed them? gasped Alan with a rush of relief. You know him? No, my friend. I've never seen this Makor before. They generally stay in rocky places. But he is so friendly. All beasts are friendly here, my Alan. What, would Makur have hurt you on your earth? And Alan laughingly told of his fright at the lion. He had learnt one more truth about Kimar. There were no savage animals upon it. Of a truth, it was a perfect land. Wazikeshta was highly amused at his friend's story, and together they went toward the airbirds. The Kamarnian airships were indeed wonderful creations. White and gold, they were shaped like swans, with graceful wings outspread, gleaming in the light. They were made of a mixture of wood and metal, and contained accommodation for perhaps forty passengers, as well as the waz in command, and a staff of ten. Although not as big as the ill-fated Argenta, the Kimarnian airship was possessed of a speed nearly thrice as great. This is Chlori, said Waikeshka, and our fastest bird. The Jekak has given orders that you are to choose your own vessel, so perhaps you would like to see over some others? No, said Alan, looking at the blue hangings, and seeing in them the reflection of his love's eyes. No, this one will do beautifully. And the Waz was impressed by the easy way in which his friend was pleased. He little realized that it was the name of the vessel, the quarry, that attracted him. And in the strangeness of it, Alan tried to read his fate. We'll go for a short cruise, said the Waz, and go back to the landing stage, Miniavar. There was not a cloud in the sky, and the warmth from the sun's rays was pleasant. I can't understand how you benefit so considerably from the sun, your Kaimo, said Alan. Let me see. You must be at least five times further away from the sun than we were on our earth. Yet instead of your light and heat being reduced to about one twenty-fifth of our supply, you appear to benefit to exactly the same degree. Ah, my friend, that is easy to explain. Dark clouds hover outside our globe. Yes, bands of vapor, corrected Alan. Well, vapor. These bands completely encircle our world. They are saturated with a composition of gas, sulfuric ether, I think you would call it. Well, this gas acts as a trap to the sun's rays. It admits the solar rays to our planet but prevents their withdrawal. Therefore, it permits the heat to enter but prevents its escape. Well... Consequently, we get the maximum of light and an equable temperature. Do you then have no seasons here? Seasons? Yes, spring or winter. Oh yes, it is cold at the poles, very cold. But as we get nearer to the equator, it becomes warmer and hardly varies. You see, my Alan, our world differs from yours. The axis of rotation is almost perpendicular to our orbit. Consequently, we are not subject to seasons as you were in Quilthus. I didn't know that before. We, too, are more flattened at each end. Indeed, there are many differences between our world that is and yours that was. Do you ever have rain here? Yes, my Alan. How else would plants live and crops thrive? But again, we do not suffer from excesses. But don't you have hurricanes that last from six to seven weeks? Surely those are excesses. Hurricanes. I do not know the word. Hurricanes, winds, tornadoes. Why, they affect only the polar regions, and nothing lives there. Well, laughed Alan, I think your world is a great improvement on ours. The scenery they passed on this pleasure trip was very varied. 
but very similar to the world he knew at its best. Here he could imagine he was in the highlands of Scotland with its crags and hills and torrents, there in southern France with its vineyards sloping to the river's edge. Again the warmth of coloring suggested the tropics, and the next moment they were flying over great inland arms of a sea that were reminiscent of the fjords of Norway. They descended at last and went to the jacac to bid him farewell. There a surprise awaited Alan. "'My son,' said the jacac, "'our Ipsa Rorca has decided to travel in the glory to Humori. She desires to reach her father's side without any more delay. Taza Komervan has obtained permission from his kinswoman to attend her on the journey.' but you need have no fear, my Alan. I doubt whether you will even see the princess. She will keep within the precincts of her apartments and will be attended exclusively by her maid. Alan felt distressed. Should he tell the jaycock of his encounter with Colmervan? Had he obeyed his first impulse and confided in the kindly old man, he would have saved both himself and Clory from much suffering. As it was, well, who can tell which is always the right course to take? Errors are made and paid for in suffering, even in a perfect world. Is it far, my jacac, to Humori? Forty kaimos will take you there. Forty kaimos, about twenty of our earth days. It is quite a long way, then. Ah, my friend, you have no idea of the size of our planet. And yet you are all one nation, with the same customs and religion and speech. It is hard to comprehend, my jacac, for at home on our little islands we were composed of four distinct races. The Ipsa Rorca will board the glory immediately, said the jacac. Now Mitzer be with you. Farewell. There was no sign of the princess when Alan boarded the ship, neither was Colmervan to be seen, but he was surprised to find Waco lounging on the deck. He gave Alan a cursory nod of recognition as he passed, but did not rise or offer any greeting. Don't you know Waco? asked Waikeshka in some surprise. Why, of course. I met him at Colmervan's party. Then why does he not rise and greet you according to Kimarnian custom? You have broken bread with him. Please, Vakeshta, don't say any more. I, I think I understand, and perhaps it's my fault. Let it pass. As you will, my Alan. The glory rose, soared gracefully over the marble buildings of Miniavar, then, tilting her nose, climbed swiftly. The princess remained in her cabin, her doors were closed, and the balconies round her apartment shuttered. "'Ought I to pay my respects to the Ipsororka?' asked Alan. Vazikeshta looked at him in horror. "'Nay, my friend, it is not seemly to address our Ipsororka unless she summoned you first. "'She has given strict orders that she is not to be disturbed.' "'So, Comervan had begun his work of revenge. "'Darkness fell, and Alan retired to his little cabin. "'There were few on board, ten souls in all, "'and the whole place was wrapped in stillness.' All the same, he felt very restless. The four moons of Jupiter were shining brightly. They were now passing over a sea, and the moonbeams were playing on the rippling waters. He rose, dressed himself, and was about to leave his cabin when he heard a faint movement outside. His senses were quickened. He felt for the first time since his entrance into this new world a feeling of impending danger. In a second, his mind was made up. Quickly, he placed a cushion on his couch and covered it over with rugs. In the semi-darkness, it almost showed the curves of a living body. The door latch rattled softly, and Alan slipped behind the folds of a heavy silken curtain. Softly, the door opened, until it was just wide enough to permit the passage of a man's body. 
Alan peered through the curtain opening and saw that it was Colmervan who had entered. The Kimarnian stepped over to the couch and touched the coverlet. He's asleep, he whispered in his own language, and Waco entered softly. Have you the spray? Yes, my Colmervan, but is it necessary? I'm afraid... Fool, hissed Colmervan. The spray. Waco handed him a long piece of tubing, the end of which was fastened to a small bulb. Colmervan laid the nozzle end on the bed. There was a slight hissing sound, and the room became sweet with a subtle scent. Quick, whispered Colmervan to his accomplice. Hasten, lest the fumes overpower us. And the two hurriedly left the chamber, closing the door tightly behind them. The air was already heavy, and Alan felt a drowsiness coming over him. With a mighty effort, he opened the window and leant out. It was a battle royal between the fumes and the fresh air. Alan felt his head reel and his senses swim, but the pure night air conquered, and the little cabin was soon free of its poison. Silently, Alan sat until the dawn broke, thinking over the strange problem that had presented itself to him. He had made an enemy, unwittingly, it is true, but an enemy who would stop at nothing in order to further his ends. He wondered what effect the powerful fumes would have had upon him. In a land where there was no death, could life be taken? What would have happened to him had he inhaled them? He was determined to ask Wajikesta at the first opportunity. Suddenly, from without, a cheery voice hailed him. It was the Waz. "'How did you sleep, my friend?' and he entered the cabin. "'Very well, indeed,' said Alan, glibly lying. "'I slept badly, my Alan. I had evil dreams of you. I saw you lying. Sirkwer, oh!' "'What is Sirkwer?' It is the worst thing that could befall us on Kimar, my friend. Seldom it happens, but once in a lifetime. The body stiffens. Sleep comes from which one never awakens. Life is, to all intents and purposes, extinct. Yet the body does not melt into nothingness, as at the sacrament of Shalarika Tata. It remains on earth, cut off from the living, cut off from those already in glory. Useless, desolate, alone. What causes it? asked Alan eagerly. Sometimes a blow or a fall, or it can be produced artificially by inhaling morca, a gas used in the weaving of our silks. The workers wear shields over their mouths when using it, and are very careful. Never have I known such an accident to occur, but it could. It was thus I dreamt of you, my Alan. Alan smiled. He had come across as strange proofs of telepathy as in the old world between kindred spirits. Whatever happened, he knew Wazikeshta was his friend. Perhaps I am in danger, my friend, said he. If so, can I count on you? My Alan, I would suffer even Sirkwar for you, he answered fervently, and Alan knew he spoke truly. End of section 25